Hi, friends. Today, I have a very special guest. Her name is Dr. Jacinta Jimenez, or Dr. J. She is a clinical psychologist, and her new book is called The Burnout Fix. Dr. J is an expert on burnout, and her recent book offers practical advice on how to sustain your success and personal well-being with science-backed resilience strategies to keep burnout at bay. On today's episode, she talks in depth about burnout, her new book, and offers some personal strategies to maintain vitality. Thank you for listening. Dr. J, uh, thank you for joining me today. I'm really excited to talk to you. Uh, how are you doing? Good, good. I'm excited to be here um, and be on your podcast. Thank you. Um, I'll be honest. I was really confused about how to start this because you've done so much. You have such a rich history. You were uh, like an expert on CNN. You've helped develop an app. You've been with BetterUp. And um, so I thought the best way I could start this was to talk about your book, The Burnout Fix. Um, congratulations, by the way. Yay, thank you. Yeah, <laughs> just a weekend since its publication. So I'm really excited still. Yeah, and I'm sure there's a massive um, reward and relief that comes with publishing your book after working for it uh, for so long, mm -hmm. right? Yeah, two years in the making. And when I started writing it, I had no idea. I started writing this way before COVID. No idea what, you know, 2020 was going to bring. So um, I'm delighted that it's coming out at a time where people could benefit from it because that's why I wrote it is just really wanting to help people really wanting to not let folks have to burn out in order to achieve their big dreams or, or have chronic stress or all the things that a lot of us are feeling right now. Right. The timing was perfect. Um, <laughs> and you know, it's the, the, the topic is about burnout. So I wanted to ask why is that specific topic so important to you? Um, yeah. Yeah. Well, it's interesting because burnout is so, so talked about now in the wake of COVID, but burnout has been an epidemic way before COVID happened. Um, it was, it's a growing epidemic in itself. Um, in, you know, in 2019, the World Health Organization uh, officially classified burnout as an occupational phenomenon um, from chronic work stress, stress, um, workplace stress that has not been successfully managed. And it's in their international classifications of diseases. Um, so it had been already noted by the World Health Organization. A lot of people were already reporting high levels of burnout. Um, and it makes a lot of sense because burnout happens when, you know, basically there's a mismatch between the nature of our work and the nature of um who we are as humans, right? And considering how fast technology and our world of work is evolving and changing, it's no wonder this gap is kind of growing larger and larger. And then we just throw on COVID on top of that. And it's just really made it amplified this gap even more. Um, but it, it was concerning to me because, um, you know, I, I was noticing it in my coaching clients. I was noticing it in the research trends. So I was like, someone needs to write about um, burnout and, and legitimize, like this is a, you know, a real phenomenon that we have to take 
um, appropriate, con- you know, behavioral changes around um, at the individual team and organizational level. And it's just something that we cannot take lightly because it is dangerous. And just like anything insidious or dangerous, we have to really be proactive in thinking about how to burn out, how, how to build buffers to protect ourselves against burnout. Yeah. Yeah. And for those that may not be familiar with the term burnout, uh, could you elaborate on it? Because for me, I think of it and I've always thought about it as more of just like a blanket statement, right? If if I'm like just tired from work, I'm fatigued, whatever, I don't want to deal with the stressors that come with work, I'll, I'll throw out the blanket statement of like, hey, I'm burnt out to my friends without really knowing uh, what that what that means. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you for asking this question because for better, for worse, I feel like mainstream media has oversimplified what burnout is. I think a lot of people think I overworked and so I exhausted myself and I burned out. And yes, overwork and exhaustion are part of burnout, but it's not the whole picture. It's much more complex process than that. Um, and so the science has found there's three core components that make up burnout. So the first one is exhaustion. That's like not being able to feel energized enough to get through a work day. You feel used up by the end of the workday. You feel tired when you have to get up in the morning and face another day on the job. The vacation, time off isn't going to replenish you. You are just exhausted. So that's the obvious one. But the not so obvious one is the second component, cynicism. So it's interesting, highly engaged people who are really peak performers can, you know, it's, it's riding that line where you can become so engaged that you can easily burn out. And ironically, a lot of the folks that I've worked with or who used to be the most engaged become the most cynical. And what I mean by that is they, you know, start um, not feeling connected. It's uh, another term for it is depersonalization, not feeling connected to their work, kind of questioning whether their work makes an impact. They just want to be left alone and not bothered and just get their work done. They're not as enthusiastic about their work. They don't know if it's actually contributing to anything meaningful. And that's heartbreaking because these people used to be the most engaged. And then all of a sudden they're showing high levels of cynicism. And then the final component is inefficacy. So that's um, not being able to make progress on the job. It feels like feelings of incompetence. I can't make progress on my work. I'm trying my hardest, but I can't keep up. Um, They don't feel confident that they're effective in getting things done. They can't effectively solve problems. And these people, you know, have the tools to do it, but they're just at this point where burnout has impacted their ability to be effective. So when exhaustion, cynicism, and inefficacy come together like a Venn diagram, that's when burnout happens. But the really interesting piece is that burnout can people can have different burnout profiles. So for me, who has burned out in the past, um, I know that mine shows up more as cynicism um, than it does exhaustion and efficacy. I mean, I have both of them. I definitely felt exhausted, but it was a lot of it was cynicism. And so it's important to really know where we lie on those three dimensions and that we're monitoring for it um, or else it can kind of creep up before we know it. And so really knowing what burnout is in those three components is, is half the battle in being able to recognize it. Yeah. So when you're talking about profile, you're, you're saying like, uh, we have a tendency to fall into one of those, uh, categories more than the others. Yeah. Yeah. So you could have, someone could have high levels of exhaustion, a little bit of cynicism and a moderate level of an efficacy or lots of cynicism, not too much exhaustion and a moderate amount of inefficacy. So it's, it can kind of switch based on, you know, 
our unique profile. Yeah, exactly. Gotcha. Mm -hmm. Um, When I was listening to you, I thought the first category was, um, you know, really logical. That's what I was thinking of before. Um, The cynicism part, that really relates to what's happening with COVID. Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. Because when I had to transition to working, you know, purely remote, and I have to just be on screen all day, and some people aren't even showing their faces. um, I'm, I'm just like, what's, what's work anymore? Uh, there's no, there's no connection part of my job anymore. And, and it, it makes me feel depleted. Mm-hmm. Um, and the last part on efficacy, uh, before I was thinking maybe somebody would, would be burnt out if they don't have self-efficacy, right? Maybe they, their motivation, um, has gone completely away. So that's the way I was making sense of it. But yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Yeah, yeah, um, that's exactly it. And and when we lose that efficacy, that's so important, right? If we feel ineffective, that that really takes a toll. And Christina Maslach, who is kind of one of the pioneering researchers on burnout, she's at UC Berkeley, she describes burnout as an erosion of values, dignity, spirit, and will, an erosion of the human soul, which is pretty powerful, but, but true it, it, when it really happens, you know, at, 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 to the extreme level. Right. So if you're really far in the red in terms of burnout, like, I mean, imagine if you loved your job and then all of a sudden you're feeling cynical and then you're feeling not effective and you're like exhausted too. Those are that, that really can corrode, erode on a human spirit. So I think it is a powerful kind of uh, capturing of, of what it looks like and feels like. Yeah, that sounds absolutely terrible, especially if you've been so engaged in wholeheartedly uh, involved in the work before and you spend so much time getting to a certain place in your career. Um, that's that's terrible. Um, and you said that you've experienced a burnout before. Was that a motivation to do more of your own research? Yeah, it played a big role. So I never thought I was going to be a psychologist. I was going to be a dancer. (laughs) (laughs) Never in a million years, if you asked me at like 17 or 16, like, what are you going to be when you grow up? I would have been, you're going to be a psychologist and work in tech and do all these things. I'd be like, you're crazy. Um, I really thought I was going to be a dancer and was so passionate about it. Like it was my thing. It gave me meaning and purpose. I felt, I love the feeling of flow and performance and, um, you know, got to study under two of the soloists who studied directly under Martha Graham, who's considered like the godmother of modern dance. She was part of Steve Jobs Think Different Apple campaign, you know, where you see all these amazing thought leaders challenging the world to think different. Martha Graham was one of them. I got to study um, at the Alvin Ailey American Dance Theater's intensive program for a bit, but kept having injuries and thought that um, passion and resilience meant pushing through, pushing through. So I danced my way through broken jaw, wired shut for weeks, danced my way through concussion, danced my way through mononucleosis, which is a virus that causes severe fatigue, and eventually danced my way through injury after injury all the way into burnout. And I ended up walking away from something that I loved so deeply and it was so disorienting for me to be like how can I go just like what you were talking about earlier like how can you go from loving something and being so committed to something to feeling totally detached from it and so I was like I need to figure out what this is about and so I started my 
career over again, studying peak performance, motivation and, and behavior change in psychology, but it was tough. And I'm like, and then in my own work as an executive coach and um, someone who builds out, you know, leadership development programs, I kept seeing people who are so skilled and so talented and, and need to make this impact on the world um, flounder in their careers along the way um, due to you know, working to the point of being in overdrive too long. And I just don't want anyone to have to compromise their dreams, their ambition, and also their vitality, right, along the way to making impacts on the world. So it's definitely a uh, labor of love, but I, I now balance it. I don't get too far like dance. This I'm pursuing this one with moderation. <laughs> right. Um, and when you're talking about that, you know, I have a little bit of background working with athletes yeah. and sports psychology. And a big part of that is burnout, which is why I was really excited to talk to you. Um, and where I work now and where I've been right working with athletes, mm -hmm. resilience is a really big topic that is always talked about, whether it's in business or athletes or soldiers. And I feel like a common idea is that like really resilient people, it's almost like they want to approach burnout because that almost validates the amount of effort and work that they're putting in. Mm -hmm. um, and it's like, it almost, it's almost like um, you are maximizing your, your entire output, your potential by, by getting close to that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's really interesting. You know, I, I, I keep saying over and over again, we don't want burnout to be a badge of honor and, and we have to be so careful to not live on the edge because we can't sustain our, our success when we live on the edge. And I think there's so much, I mean, I think the crux of, being resilient and avoiding burnout comes down to this peak performance piece where, you know, you think of the Yerkes Dotson curve, right, of peak performance and not going over down the, you know, you think of it like a bell curve and this is performance and this is arousal, right? Um, right, right. Yeah, of staying right in that zone where you're not in the stress zone and you're not in the, like, um, comfort zone, but you're in that stretch zone. And in that stretch zone, you can do a tremendous amount, but you don't want to go too far or too long in that stress zone or else, you know, uh, we can't, we'll overtrain our bodies at like an athlete, but it, in mentally, we can also overtrain our minds. You know, we are human beings. We are not machines. And if we keep pushing ourselves to the point of like a robot or trying to push ourselves to match the this fast pace of our hyper-connected world um, and technology that ex that we exist with, um, we're not going to come out uh, ahead. And in the end, we end up suffering and our performance takes a huge dip. So I just see so many parallels about um, the work that you do and, and this whole theme of burnout and resilience. Um, so staying in that sweet spot, it's harder than it, than it seems. <laughs> A hundred percent. And I think whenever people are going for those maximizing rewards, they, they, they leave balance behind, right? Uh, they forget about it. So, um, in your book, do you focus on how to be aware of certain indicators that you may be approaching burnout? Um, is that a part of it? Yeah. I, I, the book is, is more about, um, kind of this set of core resilience capabilities so it's a play on word. It's called the words, it's called the burnout fix, but it's really, if you look at fix in the dictionary, it means to make firm, stable, or stationary. So it's about, uh, it's not about a quick fix because <laughs> I wish, I wish there was a quick fix, but that's not how it works with behavior change. 
Always. <laughs> um, so it's a it's a uh, giving you a set, set uh, fixed set of um, skills, mindsets, and behaviors to keep you stable and grounded while the world of work spins around you. But I do think there are indicators that you need to look for for burnout. So before I like talk about these core capabilities in my book, like I definitely think people need to be tracking. Um, exhaustion, cynicism, and inefficacy, um, even weekly. You know, I wear my my smartwatch all the time. We track our steps. Uh, athletes track every, all kinds of metrics. And so we need to be also tracking mental metrics because we can see what not only if we dipped, but also if we're having a good day, what contributed to that or a good week um, can make a huge difference. And then and then when you do notice it, what can you do? You know, there's um, six mismatches between a person and their work that lead to burnout. So if you know which of those six mismatches, you can go, okay, what can I do about this? Um, or if it's just from overwork or exhaustion, how do I replenish? So it gives you so much more than just thinking, I overworked, I better work less. Um, so I don't burn out. You can be much more granular and strategic in how you approach burnout. At the same time, building out these core capabilities. These are like, I think, fundamental to being a modern day human in our new world of work. Yeah. And I, and I really love how you always come back to how it's like to be uh, the human being, Mm -hmm. right? It's not related to a specific occupation. It's not about who you are as a certain role, but it's about who you are as a human being. And um, I think that's why I'm really attracted to the book. Um, And can you give me one specific example of uh, the mismatch that you're talking about? Yeah, yeah. So I, I'll walk through, I can do it real quickly to walk through the six mismatches just so people are aware of them. And I cover them briefly in my book. And then the main part of the book is about the core, core capabilities. But I think it's so important that people really understand these mismatches. So the first one is fairness. So if you're working at a job and you get passed over for a promotion and there's not clear promotion, um, you know, criteria, then that's not going to feel good. That's one example of fairness. It's going to eat away after a while on, again, your soul. Um, Workload, that's an obvious one. Too much work, not enough time, not a good setup. Um, The third one is community. We are human beings. We are wired to connect. It's how we've survived in tribes. So if we are not feeling connected, if we're not feeling a sense of belonging, inclusion, um, really important parts of being a thriving human being um, that's going to take a toll. And then values is a big one. So if your company is saying it stands for something and then they're doing something else that you don't believe in, or your manager's asking you to do something that doesn't align, that again is an erosion, you know, on your human soul. Values are what we stand on for. And then the fifth one is reward. So we like reward. We like to make progress. <laughs> and that does not go away. You know, those stars you get when you're like six in school and we get excited as adults, we like it too. And we want to be rewarded whether it's social, intrinsic or economic reward. And then the sixth one is control. So if you don't have control and you're micromanaged and, um, or just don't feel like you have much control in your life, um, that's a recipe for learned helplessness where you just feel like, well, why should I try? I can't influence anything in my life. And I think I hear a lot about control with COVID. People feel like I don't have a sense of control about what's going to happen next. We're just living in limbo and that can take a toll. So it's important to think through, oh, okay, I'm feeling exhausted and cynicism and 
and in efficacy, okay, which of these six mismatches do I have and how can I, if any way, influence that piece? And that can be so empowering for folks um, versus just you're burned out, meditate more, um, relax more, um, but really addressing the cause. Well, at the same time, again, I'm going to say it again and again, building out these resilience capabilities in the background just to keep having that buffer stronger and stronger and stronger. Yeah, and I and I feel like that would be a great way to add clarity to why we would feel uh, burnout or stress, right? Sometimes I think a lot of the anxiety that people feel with work is not knowing specifically why they feel not so great or off-putting about a certain part in their life. Um, and something I wanted to ask you that I saw recently was you put out a metaphor about a seesaw and how protective mindsets can help you and prevent you from burnout. And I thought that was great because I think the only thing that I see about mindsets on LinkedIn and social media is about fixed and growth. Mm -hmm. And while I love that, but that's, that's not all the mindsets that are out there. And I feel like professionals in this field just only talk about those two. Yeah. So, yeah. So when you talk about protective mindsets, what, what are you referring to? Yeah. So my seesaw analogy is when I think about resilience, I love the metaphor of the seesaw. So um, on one side are protective factors. So those are mindsets like growth mindsets, but they can also be skills and behaviors. There's a lot of different things that can be part of that. Um, and then on the other side is adversity or stressors in your environment. And the fulcrum where the seesaw rests is genetics because genetics and character, human characteristics do play a role. Um, and so maybe we start with our set genetic set point where maybe the seesaws tip towards more adversity. Um, but over time we can literally, the, the good news is research has shown we can influence, we can build resilience. And so, but it takes constant effort and work to add more and more to the protective factors side of the seesaw. And you you can actually move the fulcrum so that the seesaw airs on the side of um, protective factors. So even if adversity comes and hits one side, it doesn't throw the whole seesaw out of equilibrium. And, and um, you can have more weight on that protective piece, but it takes proactive work. You cannot do it, you know, only when you're struggling. It's, it's a part of a lifestyle and mental change about understanding that taking care of your resilience and building these practices into your life is just a part of, of being great at your job. It, the two go hand in hand, that it's not just something nice to have or an add-on. It is a core component of how we should approach work and how employers should think about supporting their people and organization, organizational culture should think about how to create a vibrant and flourishing organization too. So um, thank you for bringing that up because I think it's important to clarify there's a <laughs> lot that could go on that other side of the seesaw. Sure, of course. Um, and thank you for clarifying that up. Um, that was really interesting. Uh, to move on a more of a personal note, I think when I speak with um, sports psychologists or sport performance consultants, um, you know, their role is really narrow and kind of defined, whereas you, you still work with um, people, but there's so many different ways that you work with them, whether it's a, you know, an expert on TNN or, you know, um, on Better Up or being an author. And something I wanted to ask you is, is there a certain feeling that you're seeking for when you, when you do your work? Are there certain, um, is it, 
is it some sort of like creativity that you're looking for? Is it autonomy? Is it is it competence? Is it passion or happiness? Yeah. So is there something that you're specifically trying to trying to get down to? Yeah, I think the biggest thing I strive for in life is meaning. Um, I think meaning and purpose are so important. And it seems like such a big I come across a lot of folks who are see meaning as such a big thing um, that it has to, you know, I have to save the world to have meaning, but meaning can be, you know, be in these small moments um, that create uh, just value alignment with what you stand for, or what your guiding principles are. And um, I think there's misnomers about meaning too. People go, um, you know, I, I need, I want meaning in my life. I need to figure out how to be happy. And I'm like, no, meaning and happiness are very different things. So um, happiness can be about, you know, especially hedonic happiness, which is the pursuit of feel good feelings and um, pleasure attainment is very different than meaning. And happiness is great. And it's not that happiness should be savored. But when we chase happiness, we can sometimes come up short because we're looking for the next happiness high. And let's face it, emotions are inherently impermanent. We can never stay fully happy all the time. There's no happiness haven destination, at least that I don't know (laughs) that I'm aware of where we're going to feel good all the time, but meaning is something we can always have. So all the things that I've pursued, like down to better up or even writing this book, they've been very challenging at times. Um, But it's the sense of meaning that I know I'll get from this that makes, makes it, um, makes it makes me able to sustain my success and makes it important for me to take care of myself because this is a meaningful pursuit, which is a long journey. It's not just about quick happiness fix. Um, And it's interesting, there's research that has found that um, people who pursue hedonic happiness without meaning, so they're not going after meaning, actually show this similar gene expression as someone who's enduring chronic adversity. Whereas people who have meaning and maybe not so much happiness or people whose meaning and happiness add up, which match up, which is ideal, show um, normal gene expression. So it's pretty powerful to think about how important meaning is when we're pursuing really you know, long, long things that we can find little tiny meanings along the way. And it's something we can make. So that's my roundabout way of saying (laughs) meaning is what kind of fuels me. Yeah, that's perfect. Um, And I think some things that come up a lot in conversation is how people seek occupations where they will be the, the happiest version of themselves or the most passionate version of themselves. And that often also ties with the the chronic adversity that you're talking about. It's that road is always so much harder than perhaps something that they're already good at. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And meaning can be something you can make. Like there's lots of really amazing research on job crafting. We just have to look for it. Um, but we can find meaning in, in, in a lot of things that we do. And that goes such a long way in sustaining our success and our resilience as well. Yeah. And is meaning how you kind of, um, help define or how you may measure your own success? Like my success is based on what I, what means to me. Yeah. It, it, it really is. Am I aligning myself and my choices and my decisions with things that provide meaning and purpose? 
Um, cause that makes me feel I am more, you know, it, it guards against the mismatches in terms of, you know, I'm in a community with people are probably doing work around, you know, I'm talking to you. This is people that I find meaning with. Um, it feels rewarding. It aligns with my values. Um, I feel, you know, I'm, I'm making the choice to align myself that that helps with control. So it, it really makes me feel like I'm guarding against these six mismatches by choosing meaningful work. Gotcha. Gotcha. And I know you've done a ton of interviews. I know you've been a guest on multiple shows. Uh, so I wanted to ask, you know, is there a certain question that you've always, you've always uh, wished somebody would ask you, but they never have? Oh, that's a great question. Um, I think I would, yeah, I think one question is just about um, how, you know, that how do, how do we think about, resilience across like an integrative approach model. Um, I think sometimes we talk about, you know, well-being and resilience, but what is it really made up of and how do we think about it? Um, Because there's so many cool tips and hacks out there like meditate and yoga and breathe and do this, but how do we really cultivate an integrative um, practice for resilience and well-being, I think is one question. And if you had to create the integrative approach to resilience, how would you encompass that? Yeah, I think it comes down to my, you know, for my book, I have this um, model called Pulse. And it's basically about keeping your personal pulse, right? Just like we keep our heart um, health well, we have to take care of our, just like Christina Maslach said, our our soul, our spirit, our vitality, our personal pulse. So, um, that's the model that I've I've been striving for with this book and hopefully it fits, but it's, um, the P is for, is behavioral. It's about pacing for performance. So all about staying in that stretch zone and and practicing with deliberate practice, approaching life through that lens. The U is undo untidy thinking. So that's cognitive, um, all about how do we not clear our minds, but optimize our thinking so that we have the most awareness to make the most optimal choices. And then the L is, is um, leverage leisure. So leisure has um, changed just as, as the work environment's changed. So how do we find true replenishment um, mentally and psychological detachment from work? And then the S is uh, secure support. How do we build networks that have breath and community? And then, and that's the social part of us. And then the E evaluate effort is the emotional part about us. How do we use our emotions as data to tell us what fuels and what drains us if we're on the right path? Are we pursuing our meaningful pursuit? What is essential? What isn't? So it's behavioral, cognitive, physical, social, and emotional model. Um, I think we have to have those all together to really approach it in a holistic way. Um, Well-being isn't just mental and it isn't just physical. It's also social. And so having all of these pieces together, I think makes it well-rounded. Yeah. And, and that's, a, that's such a very comprehensive way to think about resilience. Whereas I think oftentimes resilience is always just uh, fine-tuned to how does somebody overcome adversity, right? And I feel like that's almost a little too shallow. And I think there's a lot more that goes into um, how a person can develop and, and be resilient, right? Not just specific to certain adversities. Totally agree with you there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And um, so my last question was going to be, what are your personal strategies to perform well as a human being? And um, I feel like it 
you may have answered that with your pulse, but uh, if there's a different or if there's something you wanted to add it on, yeah, go for it. Yeah, I think so. What I've come to realize is we can, my day is always shifting because I do so many things work in tech, book, speaking, consulting, coaching. Um, so my schedule's never the same. And so it's really hard to be like, design a perfect day that integrates all of these, you know, pulse model into your day. Instead, um, what I've set out to do, and, and at the end of the book, I have this is like, I have this periodic table of elements for a resilient life. And so for each of them, each of the letters in pulse, there's three activities or three kind of fundamental skills, behaviors, or mindsets. And it comes out to 15 different ones. And so you can mix and match different pieces or to make different compounds um, to find the right recipe for you. So every day I kind of approach uh, my day with going, okay, I want these ingredients in my day. They may go in at different times. Like my meditation may be in the morning. Some days it may be in the afternoon, um, but I always have, you know, have my meditation practice. I always try to make a point to connect because human connection is so important to me. I may have a micro leisure moment. So knowing like, okay, I have to have these things to make my day feel like I invested in my pro-resilient side of the seesaw, but I can put them in at different times of the day. So it's more about what are the elements that I need in my day? And then how do I fit them in versus got to have this really rigid set and follow this day? I feel like that's not going to set me up for flexibility. Um, and our, everyone's lives is so chaotic. It's never going to be a perfect day. But if we know we just need to accomplish those three or five things or four things. Um, and again, these can be done. I always do them like on micro levels because little things add up over time. It's just being able to do them on a consistent basis. That makes a difference. Then I feel good. And I feel like I'm taking care of myself. Um, so, uh, that's what I try to emphasize to folks. It's a flexibility in there. It does it's realistic <laughs> and feasible. We don't have to think of it as this huge overhaul in our behavior to build these skills out. Um, but it's just designing like which skills do you want to focus on, you know, and how do you incorporate them into each day? Yeah. You're like, um, you're like a chef yeah. with all these ingredients for the best, for the, for like the best meal for the best day. And you just got to add it in today. Yeah, that's it. And you can just pre-pick, you know, your, your meal selection for the week. And those are the three skills you're going to focus on for the week. And the next week you could focus on different skills. And so it gives a lot of flexibility and, and playfulness and, and less, um, I feel like it makes it less heavy than going, okay, I got to do these things every day at the same time. And it's just not really realistic and feasible when people have families and kids and appointments and COVID and everything else that we have going on. Exactly. Um, well, thank you so much for your time. And where can uh, audience members buy your book? Yeah, if you're interested, I know I have the burnout fix here and here. <laughs> I'm really excited. Um, you can go to my website. It's www.theburnoutfixbook. So it's the burnout fix book, not just the burnout fix, the burnout fix book.com. And you can, um, there's a list of all the stores that it's available. And then it will be available in audiobook in uh, June as well. Is there a specific uh, website that you would prefer people to buy it from? Uh, people can get it. Uh, it's readily available at Amazon. It's also available at um, Barnes and Noble. Um, and then uh, globally, it's on Kindle, but it will be coming in April 13th um, to bookstores globally too. So I'm so I'm so thrilled that the word's going to be spread and hopefully people benefit and try this out and try their different recipes and find what's the right recipe for them. 
Perfect. And um, where can others follow you on social media? Yeah. Yeah. I post uh, on LinkedIn quite a bit. So you can, I would love for you if you're interested, follow me there. I, I do a lot of infographics and um, uh, interact with uh, folks there quite a bit. So LinkedIn's the place to go. Okay, perfect. Again, thank you so much for your time. I learned so much and uh, I look forward to hearing more of more from you and seeing more of your information. This was a lot of fun. Thank you so much.